Father, we need you now. We need your spirit to do what you've said he would do. We need it to be led into truth. So I pray, God, that you would do that work. I pray that through uh, our time in the word, we would be drawn to see your glory. And as I think about what it is today, that in that we would rejoice. Father, I pray for those that are in this room that, that, that maybe have never trusted you. Would you, would, would you show them today that there's nothing that they can do except believe in you? I pray for those that are longtime believers but have grown weary and tired. Father, through your word, would you encourage them? Would you show us who you are? Show us what you've done. And, and let us enjoy it to the fullest. Pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 today, uh, beginning in verse 8. We've got a long passage. I'll tell you about that in just a second, about why it's so long. Uh, and so we're going to read it. We're going to read the whole way through it, and then we're going to come back and work our way through it. But I'm just going to jump right into it. We're not going to do a lot of review uh, to, to put us where we're at, uh, we'll just jump right in. So Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 8, it says, If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields." He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them, and what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture, and he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This, is all, this also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go, and what gain is there to him who toils for wind? Moreover, all the days he eats in darkness, all of his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold what have I seen to behold what I have seen to be good and fitting to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on, a man, on mankind, a, a, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires Yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity, is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, 
I say that a stillborn child is better than he. For it comes in vanity and it goes off in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool, and what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wondering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Well, years ago, while I was working, still working as an aircraft mechanic, as long before I was a manager, before I was uh, telling people what to do, and I was actually a mechanic on the floor back when I still had hair on my head. I was a much younger man. I had started working at a company called Worldwide Aircraft, and I was only there for probably a month at the point that I entered into this conversation with these men who had already been working there for some time, and they were complaining about what they were making. They were upset that they weren't getting paid enough. Now, just to give you a bit of insight into why I got to where I got to with this conversation is already previously in my life, before I started working at Worldwide, I had gotten myself into some serious financial trouble. I was in a place where I was in bad, bad trouble. I had all kinds of debt. I was in a place where I couldn't see my, I just didn't know if I was going to be able to see my way out. I, I could not imagine what was coming. And so I had begun to learn already, even then at a very young age, how to live on what I made. I know it's a novel idea, but I was learning how to live on what I made, and less than what I made, actually. But uh, So this had begun, already a process begun in my life to, that I was learning to live on, on, on less than what I was already making. And then when I left the, the airline that I was at, I was working at American Eagle Airlines as a line mechanic. When I left that airline and, and moved to Worldwide Aircraft, I actually got a raise. I got better benefits, and I got, a, I think it was like a $2 an hour raise. So here's these guys complaining about what they're making, and I'm thinking... Man, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling high on the hog. I got more money in the account. I got better benefits. I, 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 I lost flight benefits, but I wasn't even using those. But my health benefits, man, that's pretty nice. And, and so I was sitting here listening to this and thinking, how in the world are you complaining? You don't even really understand. You don't even, you're taking for granted for what it is that you have. And it, it, it dawned on me in that moment, and actually it proved itself out as I progressed in the company, as I moved from from being a, a mechanic on the floor to a, being a crew leader to being a manager, the manager that hires and fires, the manager that gives raises and gives reviews. As I progressed through that process and soon was running production and customer service and was working right beneath the owner of the company, a, a principle began to bear out that, that has continued to prove true. We aren't satisfied with much in this world. Most of us think that our labor is worth more than we get for it. And maybe this isn't you. Maybe, 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 maybe this doesn't prove true in your life or you've learned some other lessons. But I think most of us look at our employers as if we're being taken advantage of because they're not paying us what we're really worth. I, I saw that everywhere I looked in this, in this business that I was in. The reality is these people thought they were being oppressed. They thought they were being taken advantage of. 
They thought that, that, that in some way the owner of this business loved money so much that he, would, that he would cause them pain and suffering simply because he didn't want to pay them a dollar or two more an hour. The sad truth is, is that there was some truth to it. Because while they weren't satisfied with what they were making, neither was he. So we don't throw away authority. We don't, we don't get rid of the, the flow of authority in the world. It's still a good thing. And in fact, Solomon opens up with this idea that, that, that authority is a good thing. That's the way the, you know, things work in the world. It's good that a king is in place and, and that the ground gets tilled. If, 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 if authority is better than chaos, he's saying. But at the heart of the problem is a love of money. A desire for personal satisfaction, a greed that compels one to take advantage of someone else so that, so that I can feel like I, I gain. Solomon's point in this passage is that even if everywhere we turn, everywhere we look at life under the sun, or whether it's in our business or whether it's in our relationships with friends, anywhere we turn, if we, if we see oppression, injustice, and unrighteousness, we don't need to be surprised. But even when we do, and we will, because of who God is and what God has done, we can still know joy. I mean, is, there, is there anyone in this room that doesn't want to know happiness? Is there anyone in this room that wouldn't want their desires, the desires of their hearts satisfied? Is there anyone in this room that wouldn't long to feel completely safe and secure in all you do? I think that's why Solomon's telling us the stories, pointing out these things that he's observed. Now, I know this sounds like a lot different uh, uh, message from Ecclesiastes than what we've been hearing. I, I know that it seems like, you know, and even people have said Solomon's uh, look at the world around him, life under the sun. Many people say it's just pessimistic, that he must just be depressed, that he's facing midlife crisis. I don't think any of that's true. I think it's a realistic look. I think it's a realistic look, looking at life under the sun through his eyes. He's letting us see and repeatedly shown us that life under the sun will not satisfy. This life under the sun is filled with futility. We, we do not feel secure in this life under the sun. There is no gain to be had, no profit to be made. Just constant, seemingly never-ending cycles of being born and then dying. Several times, several times as we've walked through this process, as Solomon has taken this real, honest look at life under the sun, he's encouraged us to look beyond it. For example, in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 24 through 25, if you just flip back just a few pages, you're going to see that he, he, he says this, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in all his toil. Now let me put it back in context for you. Remember what he was writing then. He had just given us his life story about how wealth, pleasure, work, and wisdom, none of it gave him what he wanted. Every bit of it left him empty and feeling futile. But he says now that's best for a person if they could just eat and drink and find enjoyment in their toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. 
He's pointing us to a place beyond the sun. He's pointing us to a place that, that, doesn't, that doesn't find its answers or its power or its provision from under the sun. He's saying, look to God. Why? Because in verse 25 he says, for apart from him who can eat or have, who can have enjoyment. Then after showing us that, that God is sovereign over our times and seasons, in chapter 3, he unveils some of God's divine view. And he tells us in chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, he has made everything beautiful in its time. He has put eternity into a man's heart, yet not so that he, can, so that he can, cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them to be joyful and to do good as long as... As they live. And here we are again now in chapter 5, verse 18 through 20, at the very center of our passage, at the very, at the very crux of this passage that we're studying, we're seeing him again calling us to enjoy God's gifts. You see, I think the truth is, I think that the truth is that Solomon's letter had us look at so many heavy things, so many difficult truths over these last several weeks, not to depress us. Not to make us believe that he's just some pessimistic uh, uh, jerk. I, I think his intent was to once and for all convince us that we cannot find anything under the sun that will satisfy. I think his point has been to show us the truth about the brokenness of this world, the brokenness of humanity, so that we no longer look to it and that we look to God and him alone. See, we must look beyond this life under the sun. We must look above it, uh, above the sun. We, if we're going to know more than vanity, if, if we're going to know true gain, if, we are going, if, if we're not going to come, it is not going to come from anything that's under this sun. The joy, the security, the satisfaction that we all long for cannot be produced by anything that exists in this creation. It all comes from the Creator. And it's time we quit displacing the Creator with the creation. Until we love God more than we love the creation, until we seek Him more than we seek it, until we quit displacing our Creator with the creation, we aren't going to be able to enjoy Him. And because we can't enjoy Him, we won't be able to enjoy it. Instead, we'll find the same exact thing that Solomon has been finding. Vanity of vanities. Futility, chasing wind. And that's exactly his point. It's been his point all along, I think, and it's exactly the same point as he directs our attention now to the trouble that comes from us loving money. The, the, the problem is, is not, uh, is not that, that, that we love the creation so much. It's, 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 not just, it's not just the creation that we love. It's not just the, the, the things of this world. There's specific things that we place our hope in, that we love more than anything else. And, and, and as a result, we find trouble with it. It's right and good to find trouble with it. We should find trouble with it. Because it's not meant to be God. It's not to meant to take God's place. It cannot do what God can do. 
We find nothing but futility if we pursue money because we believe it will do what only God can do. He makes this point. That's ultimately at the heart of what he's saying. That's the, the very thread that runs through this whole passage as he's sharing different perceptions that he has, as, as he's sharing different anecdotal stories that he shares, as he's, as he's pointing us to this place. Money cannot be God. Money cannot replace the Creator. It cannot do what God can do. It's time we quit loving it, desiring it, and chasing after it as if it can. He makes this point by using what's called a chiasm. It's a, it's a literary tool that basically, it's, it's fairly normative in, in, the, in the Scripture, in the Hebrew Scripture, where, where there's points being made out on two different ends of a spectrum and working to a central point. So the structure, the chiastic structure in this passage, it actually begins in chapter 5, verse 8 through 12. And then he picks up the same point in chapter 6, verses 7 through 9, people who cannot be satisfied. He moves towards his central point a little bit further as he moves along the path. And he says in chapter 5, 13 through 17, and in chapter 6, verses 3 through 6, he shows us people who cannot enjoy. And then he shows us a little bit closer to his point in chapter 5, 18 through 19, and chapter 6, verses 1 through 2, that this contrasting parallel of what is good and what he sees that's good and what he sees that's evil. And then finally, right at the center is a call to enjoy the moment, to be content with what we have, chapter 5, verse 20. The reality, I don't know if you felt it. I wanted to read the whole thing. I was hoping that you'd feel it. As we walked through, it was very difficult to understand exactly. There's, there's these seemingly almost disconnected ideas as we walk through this I, this evil thing I see, this evil thing I see. And, and hey, by the way, don't, don't, don't forget about being joyful. And then he goes back to see evil things he sees. And, and he gets down to a place where he's talking about this dissatisfaction, this appetite that can't be satisfied. And, and so it's seemingly disconnected. But when you step back and you begin to see the themes, you see this chiastic structure, this point that he's making from two ends, driving home to the central idea that our joy will only ever be found in God. But we're going to walk through each of those points. We're going to start with the most outward perspective. That's how he starts. And we're going to see what he's done so that we can see from God's word what we all need to learn. And, and Solomon teaches us that, starts teaching us that in chapter 5, verse 8 through 12, and chapter 6, verses 7 through 9 by showing us people who cannot be satisfied. And you can flip back and forth between those or you can listen to me. I would encourage you to look at them in his word. But he shows us people who cannot be satisfied in both of these passages. And he shows us in both of these passages people who are poor and wealthy. And he shows some contrast between them. And he shows some, some difficulty between them. But not just that. He shows us a lack of satisfaction. He shows us a love of money that will not satisfy. And he shows us an appetite that will not be satisfied. He, in the first passage, this love of money drives a person to do things. And in the, in the second passage, this, this hunger never stops. And even if it's momentarily satisfied, it returns. Both, he says, are vanity, they're futility. They're empty and they're fruitless. They're no different than chasing after the wind. And we have to be careful. We have to see this. We have to understand this, that, that money is not to blame. Solomon is not blaming money. Money is not the problem. 
Money is not to blame for our dissatisfaction. Our love of money is. And that's exactly what he says. Look at, look at it. When, when he says in verse 9, he points out, or I'm sorry, in verse 10, he says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Money isn't the problem. The love of money is the issue. You can't love money and then find yourself satisfied by money. It doesn't work. Paul repeated this idea in, in his letter to Timothy as Timothy's in Ephesus and he's setting up order inside the church and he's raising up leaders and he's trying to get some structure in Ephesus. Paul, writing to him, writes these words, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, For the love of money, not money is the root of all evil, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Many peoples that some have walked away from the faith because they loved money more than they loved Christ. They loved money more than they loved truth. They loved money more than they loved gospel. And because of that, they have pierced themselves with many pangs. They have brought much sorrow to their life. Money is not to blame. We are not trying to teach an idea. Solomon is not trying to make a point that money is evil. Money is not the problem with our dissatisfaction. What we love is the problem with our dissatisfaction. Our desire for it more than God is a problem. Our belief that it can give us what only can be found in Christ is a problem. Our dependence upon it more than the gospel, our faith in it more than God himself is the problem. And God has established a world. He has brought the world into futility and he is keeping us from finding any satisfaction in it, not because he's trying to hurt us, but because he's trying to show us there is no satisfaction in the creation if it's not first found in the creator. We will only ever know futility if we look for money to do what only God can. Money is not to blame. Our love of money is to blame. Money cannot satisfy us because our desire is for the eternal. So Solomon works just a little bit further in and he begins to show us. And, and, we, and we can really kind of see this at the end of, chapter, or the, end of the passage in chapter 6 where he talks about that the, all the toil for man is his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. We got this ongoing appetite. We've got this hunger that just never ends. We have a desire that is insatiable. And even, as I mentioned a minute ago, even if it for a moment can be satisfied, it always returns. You can, I think it was just what, just a couple months ago, Apple put out their new product development list, or their new, new, the new phones for this year. So, so they got people showing up to their stores and buying these new phones, and they're loving them, and they're feeling so happy about them. Until next year. When the next new one comes out. And we're feeling really good when we get our paycheck. Until next week when we've paid all our bills. We've got an insatiable desire. We have got a desire that's too big to be satisfied by anything so small as money. 
We we read it just a minute ago. I read it to you just a minute ago in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Let me read it again. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. He has written eternity into ours. He has put into us the understanding that there's more. And then he's left us in this place that is empty of eternity. We're surrounded by cycles of life that leads to death. We're surrounded by cycles of weariness that produce no gain. And yet we have this desire that cannot be satisfied in, by anything in this world. The problem is not money. The problem is that our desire is eternal and money is finite. It's going to go away. It doesn't give way to eternal things. Don't misunderstand. It can be used for eternal stuff. But it will never build out eternity in your soul. There will never be enough of it. It's too small a thing. We'll never have enough. John D. Rockefeller, a billionaire in his day, some have said that he's the wealthiest person in modern history, or was, I guess he's dead now, was the wealthiest person in modern history. It said that he was once asked, how much money is enough? His answer, just a little bit more. If a guy like that is saying, I need more, can't we learn? Our desires are too big. The deep longings of our soul cannot be satisfied because they are eternal in nature because God has placed them there so that we will quit looking at finite things to do what only the infinite can. Money is not the problem. Our eternal desire won't let us find satisfaction in something so small. Money can't satisfy us because it has no power that we don't give it. Have you ever considered this, that money only has value or power because you assign it to it? Why in the world do we get so caught up over something like a, well, maybe not a dollar bill anymore because, I mean, really, that's... The tooth fairy's even given like $5 away now I hear. I don't know if that's really true or not. I can remember being, being told, if you go cut the grass, I'll give you a nice shiny quarter. And that was like big, oh man. That was back when I still had hair, lots of it. Could comb it, even needed haircuts from time to time. Long time ago. But you just consider it, think about it for a second. A $100 bill. Did you just light it on fire? It's just a piece of paper. Just a piece of paper. Except that together we have assigned value and power to that piece of paper. But because that power comes from us, it has no power to do what we really think it can do. It has no ability to fulfill the promises that we lie about in our mind. And Solomon makes this point. He's like, oh, hey, you, 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 you think you can have enough money? Look back in chapter 5 where he's dealing with it. He says, you think you can have enough money? In, in verse 11, when goods increase, when your wealth increases, they increase who eat them. What he's saying is the need increases also. This is not to say that people don't get ahead financially, that there's plenty of rich people in the world that have gotten ahead financially. But I can tell you that the rich and famous still have problems that their money can't solve. 
They cannot have enough money to fix all their issues. That's why there's so much trouble. I mean, come on. That's why TMZ and all those uh, celebrity channels and things, those celebrity shows exist because we like watching the drama of the rich and famous. We feel jealous for a moment. Then you'll watch close enough. You'll find the troubles that they face because their money isn't big enough. It's not powerful enough to fix their problems. Where monies and goods increase, needs increase, the people who come and leech off of them increase. These lies that we tell ourselves, the money does not have the power to accomplish them. If I have enough money, I'll be happy. It doesn't have that power. If I have enough money, I'll feel secure and safe. It doesn't have that power. If I have enough money, all my problems will be solved. They're all lies that we have developed in our head. We've all assigned this power to money. We've all assigned these ideas to money, but it can't stand up because it de- derives its value and it derives its power from us. And we don't have that power. We don't have that ability. We don't have the, the strength or the power to make these things come true. So how in the world are the things that we assign power to going to do it? Money isn't our problem. Our love of money, our faith in money, our trust, our, our desire for money instead of the infinite creator, our willingness to settle for something as small and impotent as money is at the heart of our problem. Solomon will not let us live this way anymore. You want to know joy? You won't find it in money. You will not be satisfied with money. And then the next, he moves a little closer. The next point he makes is people who cannot enjoy, people who cannot appreciate the things that they have. And he he makes these points in in chapter 5, verses 13 through 17, and in chapter 6, verses 3 through 6. These two parallel ideas about he's showing us people who just cannot enjoy the things that they have. And you see it in verse 13 where this grievous evil that I've seen under the sun, riches were kept by an owner to his hurt. And then he starts this, this story in chapter 6, verse 3, of a man who fathers a hundred children. And he can't even enjoy the reality of the good things in life. <laughs> His point that he makes, poignant and hard, is better to have been a stillborn child who didn't live under this vanity, who found rest rather than be someone who walks in this life and never knows what it is to enjoy the gifts that God has given him. How sad is it? But he shows us that having money doesn't equate to joy. I know it's hard to imagine that having money isn't always a blessing. Don't we immediately think that, oh man, that person's blessed by God? I was sitting around dreaming about winning the Mega Ball lottery the other day. We, I, I don't, I've, I, actually, this is the first time I'd ever bought lottery tickets. You can judge me if you want, I don't care. I was going to give the money to the church, so. <laughs> and the church would take it. We wouldn't have any problem. We'll redeem that cash. I was sitting around dreaming about what it would look like to have a billion dollars. Oh, what a blessing it would be to get a billion dollars. 
And Solomon rips that out from underneath us, and he points to a guy who got it and kept it. He hoarded it to, to his own hurt. Money did not do him good. It did him bad. He's hurting because of this money. The, the, the reality of this, there's, the, the, this craziness. But we see this peppered all over the Scriptures. Plenty of biblical lessons that Jesus taught us about the difficulties and dangers of having money, that it's not necessarily a blessing. And it doesn't automatically equate to joy. Maybe one of the most, mo- most uh, uh, man, just depressing, sad stories is the, the story of the Jesus meeting the rich young man. The rich young man comes to Jesus, Matthew chapter 19, somewhere around verse 16 or something, uh, 16 through 22. So Jesus is approached by this young guy and he says, hey, how do I get eternal life? And Jesus says, follow the commandments. The guy says, well, which ones? And he names off some of the commandments and the guy's like, I've followed them all. What am I lacking? Jesus says, sell all your stuff and give the proceeds to the poor. And the man walks away sad because he had a lot of stuff. See, Jesus wasn't, he wasn't giving him a, a doctrine of works to, to gain eternal life. He was pointing out that he wasn't following all the commandments as if he thought because he loved his money more than he loved God. Having money does not automatically equate to joy because money isn't always a blessing. In fact, it might just be a curse. In a sermon entitled Riches and Poverty, J.C. Ryle says, Money in truth is one of the most unsatisfying of possessions. It takes away some cares, no doubt, but it brings with it quite as many cares as it takes away. There is trouble in the getting of it. There is anxiety in the keeping of it. There are temptations in the use of it. There is guilt in the abuse of it. There is sorrow in the losing of it. There is perplexity in the disposing of it. Oh, what would I do if I had a billion dollars? Maybe I should be thankful I don't. Maybe I should be grateful for what God has given me, even though it's not as much as I think I could spend. Having money doesn't equate to joy. Having money doesn't make us secure. Solomon's next person that he points out he goes on he's like okay so in verse 13 he points out a person who kept it to his own hurt and then he talks about a person that in verse 14 those riches were lost in a bad venture so all of a sudden now this money is gone money is never secure money is never going to give us the security because it's here today gone tomorrow we have no ability to or power to control it There's no guarantee that our dollar is worth the same tomorrow that it is today. Now, it's hard to believe in a nation like ours because we seem to be economically secure. But I can tell you when I go to places like um, Senegal and in those villages where 500 sifa, which amounts to about 50 cents. I know it's a little more than that, but it amounts to about a dollar. When that 500 sifa is radically different tomorrow than today because of the way their volatile uh, economic stances. There's a reality that there is no security for money. 
In the message of Ecclesiastes, it's a, it's a commentary on this passage. Derek Kidner writes this, If anything is worse than the addiction money brings, it is the emptiness that it leaves. Think about that. Man, it feels really good to have it. And then all of a sudden, when it didn't give us the security and it's all gone, and it's the thing we're counting on, it's the thing we're trusting in, how empty do we feel? A few years ago in the, in, in, in the economic, uh, when, when we went through the, the recession, people were killing themselves over it because their faith, their love of money was so strong. And then they found out that just because they had some money, they weren't secure. They jumped out of buildings and they did horrendous things to end their own life. And then in this passage, in proving us and showing us people who can't enjoy, Solomon pulls his trump card that he has pulled over and over and over again. Having money doesn't defeat death. He pulls his trump card out. And he actually, he, he borrows from Job, who, who, who at some point says, Hey, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I'm going back. I was born without anything, I'll die without anything. There's nothing that money can do to end the reality that death is coming. Death is looming. We, we can be the richest man in the world. Uh, 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 what's his name? Rockefeller was a rich man who died. Rich people die. And they can't change it. They can't do anything about it. And their money doesn't set them up for eternity. They, go, they come into the world naked with nothing. They die and they go into eternity with nothing if their hope is in money, if their trust is in money, if their love is for money. Money. Apart from God. Money as a God. Will never give us what we want to enjoy. We will never know happiness. We will not know satisfaction. We will not know security. We will not be able to enjoy life if money is the reason for our living it. And then he he draws us in a little closer to his main point, and he gives us these contrasting parallels, the good and the evil. And he shows us at the end of chapter 5 the good that he sees. Behold, what I've seen to be good and fitting is... To eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil which one toils under the sun the few days of his life, that God has given him. The days of our life is a gift, for this is his lot. It is what he has been given, to enjoy what he's been given in the few days that he's been given them. Everything that we have is a gift from God. Everyone, he says, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. It is God's gift to us to be able to enjoy the things he gives us, to be satisfied with them, to find security and sense security because we see them as signs from him, as we see them as his provision for us. They are an ability for us to, to find satisfaction because we see him feeding us, supplying us, and providing for us. But if we separate them from Him, they will only ever fail us. 
And he shows us this evil. And at the beginning of chapter 6, we'll skip down past 20. We'll see the contrasting parallel. There's an evil that I have seen as well. He doesn't say as well. That's me throwing that in there. Sorry. There's an evil that I've seen under the sun. And it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all he desires. Yet, God does not give him power to enjoy it. What a sad, sad story. To have it all. Have the wisdom, wealth, power, purpose, and not to know joy. I mean, not, not to be given by God the opportunity or the ability to enjoy it. To have it all and to take it for granted. This is what the love of money does in us. We find nothing but futility if we pursue money because we believe it will do what only God can do. The reality is here, Solomon may be thinking of himself. He, he didn't tell us this is his story, but if we go back to chapters 1 and chapter 2, we see that this is his story. A man who had it all, and everywhere he looked, it was futile. Vanity of vanities. There is no gain in this life under the sun. What's the answer? What's the point? Why does he tell us this? He gets to his point in chapter 5, verse 20, that in this very moment that we have been given, the only moment that we are actually guaranteed is this one, not the next. In this moment, enjoy God. See, the reality is not that money is the issue. We enjoy it more than we enjoy God. The reality is it doesn't matter how much we do have or don't have. It's the reality that oftentimes we're not grateful for as little or for as much as he gives us because we don't first enjoy him. Solomon says, enjoy God. Chapter 5, verse 24, he will not much remember the days of his life. He's talking about a man who's been given power to enjoy what God gives him because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. It doesn't tell us that this man won't have seasons of life and death, birth and death. It doesn't tell us that there won't be seasons in this man's life of, of planting and plucking up. It doesn't tell us that there won't be seasons to enjoy and seasons to endure, but he won't remember much of those because he enjoyed God so much and was so grateful for what God had given him that God occupied his heart with joy. Whatever the circumstance was, Whatever he was facing, he understood that it was God's gift to him for his good. And he sought to enjoy it. In his commentary, or it's actually a book, but it's, it's kind of a commentary on this. Warren Wearsby, I don't know if you've heard of him or not, but I don't quote him often, but, but I've been reading his book, Be Satisfied, uh, as I've walked through Ecclesiastes, and I came across this point that I think just drives this home. If we focus more on the gifts than on the giver, we are guilty of idolatry. 
If we accept his gifts but complain about them, we are guilty of ingratitude. If we hoard his gifts and will not share them with others, we are guilty of indulgence. Let me make a note here before we read the rest of it. That is all driven by a love for money. But, he says, if we yield to his will and use what he gives us for his glory, then we can enjoy life and be satisfied. The beauty of this whole thing is, is that when you step back from the breadth of, or when you step back from the, from this, from the specific moment in the scripture and you begin to see the storyline of what God is doing, he longs for his people to be satisfied. He wants you to know joy. He wants you to feel secure and safe. But he knows the only place you're going to find it is in him. And so he provided every ounce of it for us. He wants us to enjoy him, so he made it available to us in Jesus Christ. Money doesn't satisfy, but Jesus does. He does. It's his promise to us, and he has the power to fulfill that promise. John chapter 6, verse 35. I've read this recently in this passage, in this book. He says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. There's an appetite in us that is insatiable, that demands an eternal satisfaction. There is a love that we have for the things of this world that's displaced from its creator. That if we would just look at Jesus, if we would just long for Jesus, if we would just love him, we would be satisfied by him. He came and he died. He lived a perfect life. He died a sacrificial death and he rose in victory. And he says, if you'll come to me, if you'll feed on me, if you'll love me, if you'll trust me, you will never hunger. You will never thirst. Because in Christ, God has provided for our satisfaction. Love Him, not money. Money does not provide security, but Jesus does. Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and through 39. The whole chapter is powerful. There's a whole chapter of what God has done on our behalf. I would encourage you to go back and read it. But let me just show you the security that we have in Christ. For I am sure, Paul says, I am sure that neither death nor life, this whole spectrum that we've been talking about in Ecclesiastes, this birth to death, this planting and plucking up, neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth. Nothing in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's where our security is. A few bucks in the bank is meaningless apart from Christ. It's here today, gone tomorrow, but in Christ we stand forever. That's where our security lies. Money does not fill our life with joy. But Jesus does. On the last night he was alive, I, he was with his, his disciples. They had just finished the last supper. They walk out. They come to a vineyard. I, I picture them coming to a vineyard, and he begins to teach them about abiding in him. I am the vine. You are the branches. 
He calls them to abide in him, to live in him. And essentially, he's calling them to obedience, to a life that revolves around him. Central, finds its central uh, uh, sense of being, finds its central purpose, finds its everything in him as, as the source. And he comes to the end of that, and he says this in John 15, 11, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Ecclesiastes is not in the Bible to make us feel sad and feel depressed. It is not a pessimistic perspective of how things work in the world. It is an honest look to call us once and for all to no longer look at a created world that cannot fulfill the promise we put on it. Look to Jesus. He longs to give you his joy. He longs for his joy to be in you. Money does not satisfy. Money does not provide security. Money does not fill our life with joy, but Jesus does. So will you look to him and him alone? And maybe your thing isn't money. But whatever it is you love more, Whatever it is, this inordinate desire that you place above him, would you put it where it belongs? Would you receive it as a gift from him so that you could worship him as God? Let's pray. Father, we obviously know we do not deserve your good gifts. We know that we do not deserve your good work. On our behalf, we, we know that our love of the world and the things in it is oftentimes out of kilter. Would you help us? Remind us again that all of these things, these deep, deep desires that we long for, these these eternal desires that only be satisfied in you, would you remind us again that there's no reason to doubt, there's no reason to fear. You have us. And you've proven that to us in Jesus Christ. Would you encourage us to live in light of that? the way we utilize the gifts you've given us, the way we either uh, spend them, hoard them, give them. Would you enable us to live in this truth? Because we know. We know. We have you. I pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.